Welcome to the Find the Way podcast. In this show, we will try to explore what is happening in emerging markets and how entrepreneurs, investors, and communities are simply finding the way to make phenomenal things happen, regardless how volatile the environment may sometimes seem. I'm excited to present to you today to Arnobio Morlix, all the way from Brazil. Currently, Arnobio is serving as the co-founder and CEO of Sirius Education, and they're building the first neo-university in Brazil. In the past, he has also been serving as the chief data scientist at Inc. Magazine and the chief innovation officer at startup Genome. Throughout his career, he has started multiple companies, led a global team of PhDs, data scientists, and consultants. He's been also advising governments in 35-plus countries on their innovation policies and authored research and analysis with Stanford University, the World Economic Forum, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Kaufman Foundation, and many more. Without further ado, let's get going. Thanks for coming, Obio. Thanks for having me, Eric. Excited to be here. Could you give us a little intro to you and your background? Sure thing. So hello everyone. Super excited for this chat today. I'm the CEO and co-founder at Sirius Education. And Sirius is a neo university, an accredited technology higher education institution that helps non-technical leaders accelerate their careers, grow their salaries with data science. And before founding Sirius, I used to work as an executive and data scientist in the Silicon Valley. So I lived in the U.S. for over 10 years, moved back to Brazil, my home country this year. And in the U.S., I worked, for example, as chief data scientist at Inc. Magazine, as CIO at Startup General, and always kept a really close engagement with the educational world. I did research at Stanford, a service visiting professor at Fundação Lou Cabral, the number one business in Brazil wrote a book and sort of bringing all this tech stuff with all the education stuff together at Sirius Education. Super cool. And just out of curiosity, Arnobio, you, you lived in Silicon Valley for the past decade, more or less. What made you choose to go back to Brazil? For a lot of us from Europe, especially everybody's just aiming as Silicon Valley as the major leagues, and that's where the game is being played at. You were there, and now you're moving back to Brazil, starting something new that is always extremely risky. What's what's happening? I'll first tell you a story of exactly when I was in the decision process. And you know what happened was basically... I, I was living in the U.S. for 12 years, uh, some of it in California, some of it in other parts. And I, I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back to Brazil for personal reasons. I wanted to go back to Brazil because I saw really exciting stuff happening in the ecosystem. And also because I saw a pretty huge opportunity, uh, specifically in technology talent. Uh, but, you know, I had this very same question you had, and it was like, I have, I'm here in the big leagues. Why don't I, I stay here versus go back? And I was having a conversation with a friend called Sam Shah, and he's a VP at a big tech company now, sold companies before, worked at LinkedIn. I was like, hey, Sam, you know, I'm thinking about this. I, I want to move back, but because there's so many exciting things, it's growing, personal reasons. 
but you know, I still want to do so many things here, here in Silicon Valley. So I want to do a lot here. So I don't know if I should move back. And then he said, Arnogo, like, what the hell are you talking about? Here, where? Like, you know, what do you want to do? You want to start a tech company, raise venture capital? <laughs> you don't need to be here anymore. You can't do that anywhere. Go to Brazil, you know, bring all the knowledge, the networks you, you built in Silicon Valley there, and you can do it. And and that that was uh, that was a, a bit of a tipping point for me. And, you know, of course, it was a, a longer process to get there. But, you know, on the, on the personal side, the country is going through major transformations of, you know, increasing technology adoption. Uh, and at the same time, our society is not ready for it. And the result is high unemployment, but then also uh, thousands of jobs that cannot get filled because of lack of technology ability. So I saw that, you know, major societal challenge. I can tell you a little bit of, you know, how that, uh, how that resonated with me because I come from an industrial part of Brazil and the jobs are kind of gone, you know, they don't exist the same way as they, they used to. Uh, so that was one change. The other one was I saw a major business opportunity that uh, I think Sirius and the work we're doing is, is well equipped to, to build upon. Yeah, absolutely. And now if you would be able to elaborate just a little bit more of what Sirius Education is actually doing. So you're providing educational services for, for whom exactly? So... We are an accredited technology college that helps non-technical leaders grow their salaries and careers with data science. So we have a program called Master in Data and Decision Science that help you if you're in HR, you're in finance, you're a manager, you're a C-level executive, and you're realizing that, hey, I need to learn data if I want to grow my career exponentially. And I might be even in a good path, but if I don't know technology, specifically data, I, I'm not going to go the way I want to. So we built this program that, you know, it's 100% applied projects. We have no disciplines. Students are all the time delivering projects. True, we help uh, our community build their network in Brazil and around the world. Uh, we have professors and mentors from Google, New Bank, Facebook, Singularity University, iFood, and more. And we help uh, students in their career long term. So in most schools, their commitment to you ends in the diploma. And I don't know about you. Sometimes I even feel forgotten by some of the places I studied at. Uh, not here. After graduation, we have a fellowship program that helps students accelerate their careers. So we have a Silicon Valley immersion, an immersion in the main, main hubs in Brazil, master classes, career mentorship, and uh, data science forums. And I mean, a nutshell is the postgraduate degree I wish I would have done years ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I made the transition from non-tech to tech. So I had studied business and economics and, you know, I was having mm -hmm. a good career, but it was super clear that like, hey man, like if I want to get <laughs> fantastic results, extraordinary results, I need to understand technology. And I did that, but it took me four years because I was taking, you know, online classes, doing a thing here, thing there, no real mentorship, no real guidance. And what we've done here is consolidate, codify that four-year journey into nine months uh, so that students can grow their opportunities. Yeah. And if we look at the, the history when you 
started studying data science you got into the game over over a decade ago how was the landscape at that time where you're the odd one in the crowd you come from from the rural areas of brazil what's the story of the development of data science in brazil from your perspective it's still happening now so that's one thing that's crystal clear true that the that development is still going on now. So Brazil could get a lot more sophisticated in terms of data and analytics than we currently are. And that's part of the uh, mission of cities to, to, to elevate that, that game for the whole country. So, I mean, you should be that, you didn't even have that word, right? Like data science, it, it, it wasn't something people said or thought of or did. Uh, if you had st statisticians, if you had mathematicians, if you had analysts, but you didn't have people with data science in their jobs, uh, today it's, it's a growing area of demand. The, uh, I mean, I can tell you specific stories from companies, including tech companies. So, you know, a few years ago, CEO of a Brazilian unicorn sent an uh, email to, to some, some folks in their team asking, hey, how many active products we have? And then, but he sent it to six different people, all of them on the BCC. So he didn't know who else got that email and he got six different answers. Uh, and because there was no data capability yet on the company, even though it was a tech company. So that was the situation then. Today you have teams that do that. You have communities that do that. Uh, and one thing that's particularly exciting for me is I think we're about to see a a major leap forward in data science, not just in Brazil, but around the world. I mean, you have models like stable diffusion that do really, really impressive stuff that is way ahead of what was state of the art three years ago. Uh, and, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll hit another wave. So right now it's still consolidation yeah. of data capabilities, analytics, and, and growing that. And I think we're on the cusp of another massive wave of use of data science in, in tech products. Absolutely. And I guess this is one of the major reasons why you have been including the 15 most promising startup lists in LATAM by, by Forbes, that you, you're attacking the market at the exact right time when the, the demand is, is crazy high and people don't even know what data science is, number one. And then number two, they don't know how to structurally and efficiently develop their capabilities to the next level. That's exactly right, Eric. And uh, when we look at uh, education, so we talked about the data side and the usage of data side of things for now. When you look at the education side, which is the other piece of the component, uh, we also see a major opportunity. And I mean, it's a global opportunity, but Brazil in particular is overeducated and underskilled. So we have lots of people with degrees, but they don't have the skills that the, the job requires. And, you know, it's a bit like what's happening with our food systems, right? Like as a society, we're overweight and undernourished. Same thing in education. And in Brazil specifically, it's a massive market, the fourth highest, largest, uh, fourth largest higher education market in the world. At the same time, it has the worst tech talent gap among major economies. So in Brazil, for every one technology grad, we have 11 uh, business and lawyers. So one person graduates wow. in tech, 
11 graduating business or law school. In the US is one to five. In Germany is uh, a winnable check. Yeah, or Germany is also one to five. India is one to three. So in Brazil is mm -hmm. one to 11. So it's the biggest gap among major economies. So that's why we see, you know, global opportunity starting with Brazil. And, and why is that the case? Why is the gap so large? What's the story behind it? The, there's a global story and there's a Brazilian story. The global story is we're in the middle of a technological revolution that hasn't had an educational revolution. And, you know, every industrial revolution needs an update of the educational system. And our current industrial revolution hasn't had that yet. And I think that maybe the clearest way to imagine that is if you're a time traveler from the 1950s and you get on a time machine, magic, you come to 2022 and you go inside a factory, it's totally different than what you know. Computers, robots, not that many people, clean factory, you know, wild, wow, the factory is clean. If you go to an office, totally different, internet, dashboards, screens, cell phones, completely different. Most of the people work here, not even there. Uh, but if you go to a classroom, a typical classroom, you recognize everything. And that's the same thing worldwide and this, and this is the case in Brazil. Uh, and then when we look at, so everybody has that problem. That's another way of saying that. And the technology gap exists in, in uh, every major country. And then in, in the case of Brazil specifically, uh, we have a complex regulatory environment for higher education and we have uh, cultural norms that are taking longer to catch up with the, with the reality of the market, really. Uh, so the, on the regulatory side is, you know, that was a major challenge for us that we decided to become an accredited college. That's something really unusual for, for most of the people in our space. And it was a pain, you know, we had to learn a lot. We had to get inside the, the, the mechanics of regulation to really understand how to do it well. And then on the cultural norm side is, you know, people still want their kids to be lawyers, even though in Brazil, law school doesn't pay well anymore. Like, so if you're a lawyer, the typical salary out of college is two, a little bit more, two times the minimum wage. Uh, so it's pretty low compared to tech, but people still uh, want that for their kids. Wow. So that is still very much rooted in, in the culture, as you stated. And is that now changing? Are people seeing the, the great Brazilian companies that are popping up to the world and really disrupting multiple different industry verticals? Is there a, a big momentum right now? I, I guess so, since you, you initiated the whole project. Huge momentum. You know, uh, it's when I watch uh, uh, ads in Brazil now, like, okay, like you're watching, you know, a soccer game and you look at the ads in, in the, during the break, you see tech companies doing ads like primetime TV. That was not the case five years ago, let wow. alone 10 years ago. Uh, so people see that. Uh, I saw research recently from, uh, shared by a, by a colleague in the education market that, you know, they do, they don't do higher education. They do basic education in high school. And they were asking parents, you know, how they feel about technology degrees. And then for the first time, parents were saying, I don't really know what that is, 
but I would pay my kid to pay for my kid to study that. So the we, we see a shift in in how people perceive it. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. So now you have just launched a little bit over a year ago. Was it twenty one? And you have raised around one million dollars. What's happening with those funds? Where are you going to allocate that, and and what's coming? Yeah, exactly. So we raised a million dollars late last year. We've been operating for just over a year. We've done lots of pilots to understand what actually work. And you know, when I described this group of the non-technical leader, the non-technical manager that needs to add data to their skill set that comes from those learnings. We did a, a, a big project with AB InBev, with Sebrae, which is a major uh, government agency in Brazil, quasi-government agency. And uh, we're really excited that, I mean, we basically figure out the learning model. That, that was one of the, the major uh, discoveries. Nine, so we have sky high NPS, 87, 97% employment rate for our students. They work for places like Google, Heineken, uh, loads of startups. And the, and we got accredited. So the accreditation actually happened uh, a few weeks ago. So until then, we we're operating as a private school, basically running our pilots as boot camps, and we became an accredited college. So that's what we've invested the funds in so far. And those funds are also uh, funding the next round of launching the first postgraduate degree, which is the one I described, mastering dating decision science, and then growing that. Cool. And then, okay, what are you exactly then teaching to these typically non-technical people who have been operating different carriers and now are realizing finally the extremely important aspect of data data science overall how are you getting these people excited how are you teaching them to be able to combine so much knowledge that it's just scattered into multiple different places into a neat educational package how, how are you doing it so we do it through what we call cross scaling so you know if you're a manager today that decided you need to learn tech or data. Uh, the options in the market are usually for reskilling, like you know, uh, if you do a boot camp, it's training you to become a junior data scientist. Uh, and there are some options that are for upskilling. You're already a data scientist and you want to grow that, you could do that. But if you're a manager and you want to add data to your skill set, there's not really an option, uh, which is why we created this. And we do it through cross skilling which is complementary abilities, things that go well with what you already know. To, to drive it home, you know, we have uh, Igor, who is a guy from HR, he learned data, now he does people analytics. We have Carol, who has been a banker for 10 years. She learned data, now she does financial models for that same bank. Uh, we have Rafael, who was an executive CRO at a, at a growing tech startup, EC-backed, millions in funding. He didn't know data, even though it was an AI company. So he was like, okay, if I want to be a really good executive, I need to understand data. So he learned that. And now he's, he's a data-driven exec for his company. And we we do, so it's cross-killing and then projects. We call we call PBE, Portfolio Building Education. So we have no disciplines all the time. Students are learning practical skills. 
They learn Python, they learn statistics, they learn machine learning, they learn uh, business intelligence, and then they apply that in projects directly that are from their own context of work. And that's how they learn it. Mm -hmm. And then when you start with these people, with these non-technical people, um, what is the starting point? You're, you're going to buy Python, you're going to statistics, you're going to apply that knowledge in, in their projects. How do you get started overall for, for people who do not really understand data science? And then when you mentioned, when we had a chat prior to this podcast recording, you were talking about that even your first classes, your master classes were too advanced, right? So why were they too advanced and, and how are you trying to, to get going? So the, the first step, once you enroll, is you do a free Python bootcamp. So that's like intensive, uh, hands-on work. So you get situated on the, the primary tools of data science. So that's step one. And everybody got to do that before the, the program proper starts. Uh, some people already know that and they, they don't really need to, to study the bootcamp. They just send a challenge and that's it. But then the other ones do the bootcamp. And that's what we do to, to level the, the class or in terms of technical skills. Uh, and then after that, we have modules with specific skills to be learned and then specific deliverables. And, uh, and with, with that, students work together and, and deliver the projects that add direct value to, to their work. Okay, cool. And then where do you see the that this industry is heading towards that, especially in Brazil um, and overall in Latin America, where, where is data science heading? And when do you think that you have been able to successfully start minimizing the gap between demand for data scientists and supply of data scientists? I think it's worth uh, taking a step back and look at what we're building for the long term. So, uh, what we're building in Sirius is a full stack alternative to traditional higher education. So we, we're starting with postgraduate degrees in data science, or we're adding postgraduate degrees in every area of tech and also college degrees, because we think that's where we need to, to be at eventually. And the master plan for us is first dominate the postgraduate education in data science for, for Brazil expand that to postgraduate degrees in other areas of tech, use the learnings and the, and the money there to expand to college degrees in tech. And then uh, along the way, build this stack that every university, every boot camp, every school in Latin America can use. And we're already doing that. For example, we have a partnership with Sembrae College, which is a, a major business school in Brazil, where they are using, we've done a joint degree because they know business, but they don't know data. So we're doing it together and they're using our educational stack to, to be able to deliver this joint degree. So that's how we see it long-term. So we're building a full stack alternative to traditional higher education, starting with data and starting with Brazil, but with the goal of expanding to all these other areas of tech and all of Latin America. And that <laughs> the way I'll know we're successful is when parents are just as happy to have a kid choose to go to college for tech or data science as they are for that kid to go to law school. Yeah. 
that that's a very ambitious and, and a big important mission that that you're on at it right now i just absolutely love it and then if you would be able to also give your thoughts and your insights on now about the differences between operating in tech environment in silicon valley and now coming back to brazil could you share a little bit about your thoughts what are the differences what have you experienced about that one of the exciting things about brazil and latin america now is the sense of possibility and opportunity and growth uh, and that feels really really encouraging that uh you know you hear uh, i don't think it could do what we're doing today with serious five years ago maybe i think it would be a lot harder like I, it's not uh i think the the that has definitely shifted and people feel it and they are like hey like this is an exciting place to, to go so there's a, a massive sense of this is a early community it's small enough like you can meet lots of people quote unquote everyone and uh, that's an exaggeration but you have a sense you can you can meet lots of people quickly and it's growing and that part is really exciting uh the thing we do not have as much in Brazil that I miss the most uh, from Silicon Valley is this sense of global connectivity and global ambition. And I think when you look at the whole of Latin America, that might be one of the major things that we should change as a collective ecosystem. So, you know, if you talk with a founder in Silicon Valley, they would tell you, hey, global ambitions, we're changing the world. This is massive, and to make that happen, we're going to have global customers, global teammates, global money coming in. We're going to be uh, connected with all the, the, the important global conferences from our market. Uh, when you So that's a very typical experience in Silicon Valley, but then you go and look at Brazil, the ambitions tend to be smaller on average, and there is way less global connectivity. So it's not obvious to a Brazilian founder that, you know, right away, like we're in a global market and that doesn't mean we need to be selling globally today, but it does mean we need to, to know what's happening and we need to be connected to, to talent networks and other founders and, and global capital. Uh, but in, a lot of the ecosystem still doesn't have that. And, you know, there's, there's good data on this even from, from my former teammates and my friends, my former teammates, my current friends at Startup Genome that measure this kind of stuff, global connectivity, global connectivity, global ambition. And it's very, very obvious how places like Brazil don't, don't try to go global as much. And uh, in Silicon Valley, people do. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. And how... Okay, so the mindset is a big differentiating factor, and that's also what I see between a lot of different European countries and then compared to the when I spend time in the US, there is a big difference in terms of ambition and hunger to take things extremely big, right? But then if we take a now look on the Brazilian ecosystem and the operating environment, you have raised $1 million, how has that evolved? How has that evolved that you can launch a company, a startup, make that grow, 
are people supportive in terms of institutions and and what what's that environment like i think yeah i think the ecosystem is supportive and i mean that's part of the shift i've seen you know i don't i don't have people frown or think it's weird that you know i'm doing a tech company you know the it makes sense, like in a way that didn't five years ago. You know, like I can go <laughs> and <laughs> at Christmas and people ask and they say like, "Oh, I'm doing a tech company." And they're like, "Oh, that makes sense. That's cool. Uh, that's that's <laughs> nice. a major shift. It didn't used to be like that, but I think today, in many ways, it is. I mean, access to capital is still complex. Uh, there is a lot more capital there you should be than there you should be. And that's fantastic." Is also quite a bit less in the U.S. Uh, the some of things, some of the things around the legal environment, regulatory environment, are more difficult in Brazil. Uh, there is certain kinds of restrictions on funding that do not exist in the U.S., for example. But then some things are easier, actually. So I. I Oh, I have to think about that. How I wash it? What's the net effect? Yeah, but what do you mean by restrictions compared to the U.S.? You know, uh, you cannot do a safe in Brazil, as as I understand, and as I've talked with many lawyers. And if anybody knows it different, please tell me, because I I bumped against that. But you you a typical safe without a end year term, the Brazilian legal system doesn't seem to allow for that. So you could do a convertible note that expires or, you know, uh, has a term of five years and you could do that, but you do what's the primary funding vehicle for startups in the US, which is a safe that has a conversion, but doesn't have a, a, a date end. Uh, you cannot really do that in person. So that, that would be one specific example that uh, we, we've noticed. Yeah. And just a question out of curiosity, since I've been talking also to a lot of um, tech ecosystem stakeholders, entrepreneurs and investors from Argentina, the neighboring country, where a lot of the entrepreneurs out of necessity are creating their entities where they're taking all the VC money and or the investments to the US. So then they circulate all or most of their activities through through the U.S. Is that now happening in Brazil that you're creating still local entities and, and the money flows directly through Brazil? So that's, that's one advantage of Brazil compared to most other Latin American countries that you can do a Brazilian entity and raise money in Brazil and there is enough angel and VC money that you could have a, a meaningful round just with local money mm -hmm. without having to do a a U.S. Uh, entity or Cayman entity, for example. Uh, so you could do that in a local round, and some companies do that, and they only get foreign capital much later. Uh, it's also a two-edged sword because it makes the ecosystem a little more insular and less connected globally. Uh, the, so that's the summary. You talk with most Brazilian companies, they're not thinking about that at the very early stages. Uh, unlike, you know, every serious startup in Buenos Aires has a U.S. entity right away, or perhaps a Cayman entity. Uh, so that's a distinction. But we see that changing in Brazil. Uh, you know, it's a, a 
a shift that I think we'll see more of because it's a requirement for the, the ecosystem to go global. Yeah, absolutely. And then would you be able to give some other examples of the regulatory differences that you have? You mentioned that opening up your whole firm, uh, getting accredited, that was one heck of a regulatory nightmare in a sense. Is there any other differences that you would be able to explain a little bit more deeply between the regulatory environment that you ask, for instance, where you have a lot of experience? Labor laws. So the, the labor market is much more regulated in Brazil than in the United States. In Brazil, it's uh, much harder to do a freelance contract. You have, and in fact, if you have a lot of freelance contracts, you might be opening yourself up for later litigation. That uh, you know, that's a, that's not something Brazilian law sees uh, kindly. If you have most of a team hired as freelancers or as companies versus as full-time employees with a series of benefits. Uh, and then the benefits are also much more regulated, basically, you know, like, uh, vacation and, and, and taxes, those are the, the, both the tax burden and the regulations around labor are higher in Brazil than in the U S and, you mm -hmm. know, for a startup, super early company that can become a real pain in the ass because you, because you don't know yet, you know, what kind of people you want to have on board. You don't know yet. Uh, the, the, the sort you're going to have, you don't know the right size. So it, you know, something that might be, uh, a, bur a regulatory burden that might be straightforward and easy to manage for a large company can become super problematic for a startup. Yeah. And then now when you even wrote a book during COVID and during the pandemic, um, and I think that you're a great person to ask this. Have you seen a shift amongst the Brazilians, especially who are working in tech? There is a big community that are not, and they need to educate themselves more through a platform like Serious Education to get into the world of tech and more embedded into it. But is there the ones who are from tech background who have been operating in that environment for a longer period of time now after COVID? Have they opt to work remotely? to U.S. corporations, for instance, in the hopes of higher salaries. How are you seeing that shift now taking place in Brazil because we have players like remote.com or Deal making it super easy to hire people no matter where? Yeah, there's a major shift both uh, within their country and globally. It should be that several years ago or 10 years ago, I had one friend that works globally uh, and Today is a bunch. Like you meet all all day, every day. You meet tech people that are working for companies in the U.S. or Europe, especially. Those are sure the, the the big places people tend to work for. Uh, so that's one uh, part of the story. The other part of the story is companies within Brazil hiring in any city. So you have uh, full remote and, and hybrid teams, even in super traditional companies inside their tech departments. And that was absolutely unheard of. So the, that was a, a, a major, major shift we've seen since COVID. Mm -hmm. 
and from there is your organization full fully remote or how are you structured we are uh, we did a plan to be to be honest so at the very beginning we thought it would we would have a hybrid team hybrid learning model and then honestly students don't care to come to the classroom you know thursday 7 p.m private mm -hmm. or side of town even if it's just once a week or once a month they don't care uh but they do care to have in real life networking and that's how we ended up at first we thought we had a plan that's you know, we have a beautiful campus actually it looks awesome uh and the but you know people don't care to use it and they're like okay so we're <laughs> yeah. adjusting it uh luckily we we it was a very efficient investment because it was doing COVID, so we, we could get a lot a real estate for cheap at that time uh so it, it, it was it was an easy adjustment for us so we thought it would be hybrid but you know no it's not going to be hybrid it, it is not for us now so we have online classes which in real life networking which is immersions and specific events and we decided to do the same for our team we have folks working all over brazil and then we have specific events where we bring people together to, to connect with each other nice nice and as a final question where do you think that brazil is gonna be the most recognized in which vertical in which technology area in, within the next decade or so i have two answers one of them is ed tech and the reason i uh i think that is because this challenge we talked about of the, the this technology education crisis that's happening all over the world, uh, where we don't have enough people trained for, for for tech jobs, will require solutions coming from places like Brazil. So today, most of the solutions that we've seen around the world and the educational solutions that we've used so far then come from the US and Europe. And I think the, the solutions that, that are going to work for the whole world will not come anymore from the U.S. and Europe. Uh, they will come from places like Brazil, places like India, places like China. And the reason for that is, you know, in Europe, education, this tech education crisis happens everywhere. In Europe, I'm sure the solution will depend heavily on government funding, which exists there, but not in the same way in other countries. In the U.S., uh, you know, even the, the major solution that comes from the U.S., such as income share agreements, uh, don't work as well in developing countries, certainly not in Brazil. So in the U.S., a typical deal for income share agreement is two years, 10% of your salary. The people that do that in Brazil charge 20% of your salary for five years. So totally different. So I think that would be one major thing. We're going to have ad tech solutions coming from Brazil and places like it. And then the second big one, uh, and this is the one that's recognized for today, is fintech. So the the most successful, I think it's fair to say, the most successful unicorn in tech today is Brazilian, Nubank. Uh, they spurred a massive, massive shift in payments in Brazil. And you see a lot of really exciting stuff happening, uh, including supported by the government. I'll give a very specific example. So if you if you visited Brazil, you see people asking, do you use Pix? Can you use Pix? So that's a digital payment platform created by the central bank that any Brazilian can use instantly because it can be tied to your social security number. 
There's zero fees, it's instantaneous, and you could buy. The amazing thing is, you know, adoption was blazing fast. I wasn't living in Brazil yet when that happened. So one time I came, there was no picks. The next time I came, you could use picks everywhere. And I come frequently. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, like you could buy something like, uh, uh, you know, someone selling a, a street vendor, selling homemade food. You could buy their stuff with picks and they use it. Uh, and I think those examples of really cool early successes, Nubank is the major one combined with this clear support from the regulatory environment will will power Brazil in the fintech space. Great. Thanks, Ernobio, for taking the time to have a little chat and share part of your journey. Super exciting things are, are happening and, and you're working on a very, very important mission. And I'm excited to see where you're heading. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Such a pleasure to, to chat and learn from you. Thank you. Thanks.